Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Around the Block podcast. On today's episode, Alicia Haas, the Chief Financial Officer at Coinbase, and David Duong, the Head of Institutional Research at Coinbase, will be reviewing the past year in crypto, the highs and the lows, the breakthroughs and breakdowns that define 2022 for our industry. I hope you enjoy it. But first, I'm going to talk with my Chief of Staff, Mark Cialoni, about what's top of mind at Coinbase. There's been a lot of market volatility over the last week. What do you make of all the noise in the industry right now as we as we come into the end of 2022? Yeah, well, I think we're seeing some of the fallout from the FTX collapse, and there's still a bunch of fear out there in the market. We're seeing um, some of the firms that had, you know, they were creditors essentially in some way, way shape, or form to FTX. They're starting to deal with some of the financial fallout. So I do think we'll see a few more shoes drop, but. Um, hopefully it doesn't get too bad. And I think the main message I just want everybody out there to know about Coinbase is just how we're different in these moments. That's kind of my job as Coinbase CEO. You know, I, I keep reinforcing to people that we're based here in the United States. Um, we store all customer assets one-to-one. You know, we have financial statements and control audits and security reviews and everything that goes back uh, many, many years that has, has helped us kind of show that. So you don't have to take our word for it. And then we've got $5 billion on the balance sheet as well that kind of will help us weather any downturn in crypto and come out of this other side of it even stronger. So with my Coinbase CEO hat on, I have to be out there making sure people who aren't deep in this industry just understand that difference. And it's not just Coinbase, you know, zooming out from my Coinbase CEO hat, I also just want to kind of help the whole industry grow. And so it's not just Coinbase. There's many, many legitimate, great, innovative companies building in this space. And you know, I want us to the, the great actors in this space to come together and, and help reinforce that message. Don't let uh, the negative news cycles focus too much on the companies that aren't um, doing things in the proper way. Totally makes sense. And I think you know, there's been a number of setbacks driving some of that volatility, a number of setbacks driving a lot of the, the conversation in Washington and in other policy circles. And there could be a lot more coming next year. Um, where do you think we as an industry need to to go to move forward from sort of this current state of, of chaos? Yeah, well, I think we're kind of coming to terms with the the fact that our industry has attracted more people, you know, doing scams or operating in the gray than we would like. And so I think we as an industry and policymakers have a role to play here. Crypto customers and users have a role to play here. The companies that certainly do. We've got to turn the page. And I've got a blog post uh, coming out on this. It should be live by the time this this podcast is out there. Um, and it really, it, it's called crypto regulation. Um, how do we move forward as an industry? And so the first thing is we've just got to go get regulatory clarity for the centralized pieces of crypto. That's the next big step. And I'm hoping in 2023, we can get some of that regulatory clarity in the United States. I think it can start with stable coins. There seems to be a lot of consensus around uh, starting there. And we don't need to do anything, reinvent the wheel. We can really just require some of the best practices from the traditional financial services industry for stable coins, for exchanges, for custodians, um, you know, things like, you know, having a good AML KYC program, having uh, regular audits. Um, if if you're, uh, you know, make sure we, there's no market manipulation and and uh, wash trading and things like that. So just some of these basic things, applying traditional best practices from traditional financial services to the centralized pieces of crypto, I think, is a really good start. And we've got to figure out, you know, what's a commodity, what's a security, and I think. Um, Congress is going to have to pass legislation since the CFTC, the SEC have really not, um, in my view, come out and created that clarity. So we'll probably see an updated version of the Howey test that kind of applies more to crypto. And I, I, my hope is that we can actually have Congress actually 
require the, the CFTC and the SEC to get in a room and 90 days after this legislation comes out, you know, publish a list of the top 100, 100 crypto assets and label each one. Is this a commodity? Is it a security? Or is it some other, which could be stablecoin, artwork, et cetera? So just getting that regulatory clarity would be that first piece to, to sort of turn the page. Um, and then once we have regulatory clarity, we've got to have it in a level playing field enforced. You know, there's um, a lot of countries right now are sort of making the right gestures to say, well, we're going to have regulatory clarity, but they don't realize that there's various companies, crypto companies, they're not uh, based in their jurisdiction, which are serving their citizens, right? And that's going to create an issue for them in terms of um, a disincentive for the companies onshore trying to follow the rules. And then lastly, you know, if we get that regulatory clarity, we get a level playing field enforced, then we've got to preserve the innovation potential of the, the decentralized aspects of crypto, DeFi, self-custodial wallets, et cetera. Because that's where I think we'll get the frontier of innovation. We'll actually get even stronger consumer protections. And uh, if we can get those three things done, especially in the next year. I think we will have turned the page on this industry and uh, uh, the setbacks that happen from FTX and these other fallouts. Yeah, and I, I think zooming out, you know, it, it's obvious that we're going through, or it feels obvious at least that we're going through another one of these cycles. And we even started to see the whole media cycle around is crypto over, is crypto dead? And we've obviously seen that seen that play out many times in the past now. But how do you respond when you get that question? Yeah, well, in past crypto cycles, that was actually a more common question that I got. And you know, in um people would come up to me and say, you know, is now that Bitcoin's dead, like what are what are you gonna do next? This was in 2015 or something like that. And, um, you know, Bitcoin has died many times. You can kind of visit bitcoinobituaries.com. And so luckily I haven't had many questions like that at this point. Um, there may be one or two, but I don't think anybody seriously thinks that crypto is over at this point. Um, it's basically, you know, you can study the history of technology cycles. And um, if you, you know, the internet is one in our recent living memory where of course it had a bubble and a crash and then a lot of things got built and it, it all turned out to be uh, there. It just took longer than people thought. But that's been true of not just the internet. It's really, uh, you know, railroads, the telegraph, um, even even television and tel the telephone itself. Like there, many of these technology breakthroughs that have led to networks um, have gone through a cycle like this, where there's initially skepticism, doubt. Then there's a rational exuberance. There's a bubble that cr it corrects down, and then the real work happens, and and the technology does play out, and it and it eventually captures um, all the value out there. But it takes a little bit longer than people think, and it has to go through cycles. So I think crypto is going through a very similar cycle right now, along with the broader macro downturn. It's not just crypto in this case, it's actually all growth tech, I think has been has corrected down similarly. So no, crypto is not over, um, it's here to stay. And actually the irony is that when you look back at these things historically, it's the biggest opportunities happened in down cycles because the best companies were able to consolidate, hire the best talent, um, and that's when a lot of the actual, the builders build and it kind of cleans out the people who are in it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, the one difference this time, at least from my seat, is that that Washington is very engaged. And I don't I don't think that that was totally true in the past, or at least not as a, as complete a way as it has been in, in 2021 and 2022. Um, and I think there's like a real fear that, uh, you know, regulation will, will kill crypto or squander its potential or otherwise irreparably hurt it. Um, do you have that fear? Do you think regulation is going to kill crypto or, or minimize its potential? Not at all. I, I think there's sort of a there's sort of a very surface level perspective people may have coming from the outside and say, well, something bad happened in crypto. Now the regulators are going to come in and squash it. It hasn't been the case at all um, historically, and I don't think it's true here either. What's likely to happen is clear regulation. 
and that's actually a good thing for the centralized pieces of crypto. It's a very good thing for, for Coinbase, by the way, because um, you know we're going to be a net beneficiary of, of clear regulation as the most trusted player in the space, the one who's been following the rules for the longest time. Um, and, and really, any company I think that is doing taking a similar approach is going to be a net beneficiary of this increased regulation, again, for the centralized pieces of crypto. Now, the decentralized pieces of crypto, um, DeFi, self-custodial, Web3, we, we need to preserve that innovation potential. And that's where I think we can get something even more better consumer protection and regulation from the inherent properties of blockchain. Because, you know, smart contracts are by default transparent and open. You don't need regulation that, that, that does that. It, you know, it's open source. People can go review the code, right? Self-custodial, you don't need to regulate some intermediary because there isn't any intermediary. <laughs> you're, you're custodying your own crypto yourself. And so these things are actually, I think, offer a, a chance to get to move beyond um, the sort of historic uh, regulation of centralized actors in cryptocurrency. And self-custodial wallets, you know, they should not be regulated like financial institutions um, because they never store customer funds, right? Or if you're going to publish a, a decentralized protocol or host a website on IPFS, these should not be regulated as financial service businesses because, um, again, you're never taking custody of customer funds and you're just publishing, you know, code, open source code on an, on a on a decentralized um, uh, network around the world. So, in the same way that we don't treat web browsers as financial institutions, we don't treat, you know, um, SMTP or uh, TCP/IP as a financial service business, even though payments kind of move over these protocols. Um, in the same way, we should not treat self-custodial wallets or decentralized protocols and webs and websites as financial service businesses. So. Coinbase is going to make a big effort to push a lot of these efforts, um, both in DC and in all the markets where we operate around the world, to go get clear regulation for the centralized players, the stable coins, exchanges, custodians, and then preserve the innovation potential of the decentralized players. So that's, I think, this regulatory push on the centralized pieces will be a huge uh, net win, and we're we're committed to try to make that happen in 2023. Totally agree. 2023 is going to be a a big year for shaping all these important policy questions. Awesome, Brian. Thanks for the time. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Duong, Head of Institutional Research here at Coinbase. Today, I am joined by Alicia Haas, who is our Chief Financial Officer, and we will be going over the year review 2022. We actually went through a lot of these themes in our most recent report, the 2023 Crypto Market Outlook, which you can see on our website right now. But without further ado, Let's get into it. It's obviously been a really challenging year. Alicia, you've been looking at these things firsthand. Could you just kind of go through the key events that you've seen in 2022? So it has been a challenging year, but I think that we also need to look through the noise and the events that have occurred this year because we've also seen a ton of progress on the product side of crypto. So it's been a year mirrored with negative headlines, which started the year driven by broad economic uncertainty macro events which caused a decline in crypto prices. Those in turn created credit events and we saw bankruptcies or closure of some crypto exchanges. And then of course we had the fraud committed by FTX and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that. Um, to the last point, I think one of the pervasive themes that we saw this year were people creating financial companies but with very little understanding of the risks that they were putting on their balance sheet. So they built 
asset liability mismatches, there was concentration of credit in illiquid positions that did not have the ability to monetize against the liabilities that they had. This creates the risk of a run on a bank. And we saw many runs on companies. We saw that with effectively what occurred with Terra Luna. We saw that effectively that what occurred with FTX and Alameda. And so we're going to get into that more, but those are traditional risk management controls and practices that one need to have. And we saw that those were not built properly in crypto. But against this backdrop, we've seen incredible progress too. We are seeing increased global adoption as more nations leverage the power of crypto to safely and efficiently make transactions across the world. We've seen important steps forward in regulation. And I would point to Mika as a great piece of legislation that is articulating clarity for how we can grow crypto responsibly in the EU. We've seen increased institutional investment and expansion away from speculative trading, but really driven to use cases and utility with Fortune 100 companies, companies like Google thinking about cloud services, Meta thinking about the use of NFTs and Instagram, JP Morgan is doing some innovative work with their own blockchain. So lots of innovation on the product side. And then lastly, we're seeing scalability in crypto, which is a long awaited important pillar of growth. So we saw the merge from Ethereum, from proof of work to proof of stake. And it shows us that decentralized builders in crypto will continue to move crypto forward, even during the most turbulent times. So look forward to unpacking all of these themes and more as we get started. That's great. So, you know, obviously, let's maybe just take this from a chronological kind of perspective. And I think it really kind of starts with the macro side of things. And to be honest, it kind of began even before we got to 2022, right? And I, we kind of forget that because so much has kind of happened now. Um, and I'm not just talking about crypto. I'm talking about everything, of course, the geopolitics, economics of everything. You know, we kind of forgot that actually this started back in November. Um, and we saw that, you know, uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell actually dropped the language of transitory with regards to inflation back in November 2021. And then we accelerated the conversation about quantitative tightening. And I think, you know, there was a conversation about running off the balance sheet, actively selling bonds. Crypto started selling off probably around six weeks earlier than what we saw in traditional risk assets. Like, you know, like the, the stocks actually defended the Christmas rally last year. Investors instead really kind of went to the longer end of the risk spectrum and started selling Bitcoin and other digital assets. So, you know, one of the common languages in our industry is that we keep referring to this as a crypto winter. But really, it kind of started out and it still is kind of a macro winter. You know, it's just part of the broader cyclical downturn we're seeing everywhere. So, I mean, I, I mean, I would love to kind of get your, your views on that, Alicia. I share that perspective, David. And so for those who may be less initiated, we've long referred to as crypto winters when we see steep correction in the price of crypto assets, most commonly Bitcoin, which is the largest market cap asset within crypto after periods of all-time highs and so in the past these have been really severe corrections in the neighborhood of 30 to 90 percent reduced reductions in price however what we saw coming out of the 2021 all-time highs of many crypto assets where these are heavily correlated with all-term valuation highs of growth stocks risk stocks a lot of tech companies and what we've seen as we enter 2022 and the Fed changed its posture on inflation. We started to see interest rates rise. We saw a very high correlation of crypto with traditional equities or high beta, high risk stocks. And people went into a risk off mindset, which meant investors were saying, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do in this market. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to do a flight to safety. I'm going to go to less risky assets. In crypto, you initially saw that as moving from the long tail into Bitcoin and Ethereum, but you also saw severe price corrections in 
in crypto. Our view is this was not crypto related. Our view is this was 100% macro related, tied to the broader economy. And it's, I think it's a statement that crypto became very mainstream in 2021, that this became part of average investors investable asset class. And so you saw that then participating in a portfolio, much of risk on risk off, and not just the crypto natives that were there in the prior crypto winters, where it was really crypto driven. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I also think that some of the narratives for crypto, unfortunately, or fortunately, kind of broke down in the process. One of those is Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. Um, you know, and, and I think that some people end up being kind of disappointed that it didn't necessarily live up to that role, but also because we were kind of talking about two separate things, right? I mean, we're, the expectations were set rather high because we have the technological innovation side, which I think is definitely something that pretty much everyone at this point recognizes about blockchain technology, DeFi, Web3 applications. Then you also have the financial innovation part of it. And I think that kind of really came from this idea that you know, Bitcoin wasn't part of all this stuff, right? Like we have all these traditional risk assets and Bitcoin exists away from that. And I'm using Bitcoin here as proxy for, for crypto because people tend to focus just on Bitcoin as the inflation hedge, but it's away from all that. So it ended up being completely uncorrelated, which merely made, you know, for great diversification purposes in the portfolio, except when more and more people started kind of getting into it well it's it's not quite the great diversifier it was suddenly there's a massive macro event and you know let's say there's a war in ukraine all of a sudden those macro forces tend to impact everything in our portfolio so i think that's something that people tend to tend to miss when it comes to that narrative but still i think there's just a lot of differences when we're talking about this bear market versus the previous crypto winter or, or other crypto winters I mean, Alicia, you we've we've talked about this before. Like, what are your thoughts on on some of the key differences that you see? Oh, I completely agree. So one is in the past, we really had speculative trading as the sole use case in crypto. And now we're starting to see diversification of use cases of crypto. So I think that that is different. Two, we didn't really have institutions in the market in 2017, 2018, or the institutions that were involved were crypto native hedge funds. But now we see large asset managers and many other market participants that provide some stability to the overall trading volume and participation in the market. We didn't have regulators, either state or federal regulators involved, frankly, in crypto in 2017 and 18. And now we have global regulators taking notice and thinking about ways to level the playing field, bring more sophistication to the way that we oversee this asset class. And I think that's an important trend that we'll, we'll talk about later. And we're seeing people do different stuff. And so I think that's all speaking to we're going to see growth in Web3. We think that now as we come out, of this cycle, maybe it's driven by macro events. So maybe we see a change in the macro environment that leads to a crypto pickup. Maybe it's a product innovation cycle. Maybe it's a regulatory clarity. And we think that there could be multiple levers of what changes for crypto um, this time that we did not have in the past as well. Yeah, another thing I just kind of want to mention, and this is because you know I work in research, tend to focus on market views, but you know even from a performance perspective, you're really seeing that this bear market, it just, it doesn't look the same. You know, back in 2019, if you looked at a basket of Bitcoin and ETH, for example, they underperformed nearly every other asset class or at least every other traditional risk asset out there. But if you looked at how crypto performed in 2022, it actually performed more or less in line with stocks and currencies, at least on a risk adjusted basis. Uh, and actually outperformed bonds uh, and some of these other asset classes outside of, say, the, the May, November, June kind of periods where of course you know there were a lot of deleveraging events but you know i'm not 
to kind of say that conditions haven't tightened. We, you know, we've seen that in the VC side, like funding conditions are a lot tougher right now. We are seeing that developer activity is actually still pretty healthy, um, but there's some dichotomy in this space. You know, like, you know, if you're a highly sought after founder, you're going to be able to raise the money. But otherwise, you're going to struggle somewhat. I do think, however, what's really important to note is that many of the most successful projects that we have today were actually funded during the last bear market we had back in 2018, 2019. But that kind of takes us now to the next subject because there's all the other idiosyncratic stuff, right? Well, obviously, like, so important we go there. Yes, let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, you know, we, we've seen this, like it's issues of over leverage, risk management, you know, like let's kind of start chronologically with Terra, which kind of, you know, kicked off a lot of this kind of stuff. and. A lot of things, of course, led up to that. Um, you know, we were kind of talking a little bit about macro just now, but it does kind of go back to that macro backdrop again because days before Terra happened, we had that Fed meeting on May fourth, and a lot of people have kind of forgotten about it now. What's one meeting in the context of everything we've seen? But the Fed at the time hiked fifty basis points, which was in line with expectations. Uh, they confirmed quantitative tightening was going to start in June. They also, interestingly enough, telegraphed that they were not going to hike seventy-five basis points, which, of course turned out to be untrue later on. We didn't know at the time, but everyone was pretty happy with that, you know, messaging for five minutes. Then, of course, all hell kind of broke loose in traditional markets. Stocks were selling off, currencies were weaker, the dollars at a five-year high. Anything that posed a liquidity or autonomy concern was pretty much just tested. Then we got to that weekend. And of course, all these other markets or most of those other markets were closed but crypto was open. Uh, so Alicia, like, what's your thoughts? You know, what, what, what kind of happened next with Terra and, and what's, your, what's your views on this? Uh, okay, well, I think what's super important to just state is when prices are high, when things are going up, you can hide a lot of sins. And you really test resiliency and you test credit underwriting, you test market risk, you test a lot of liquidity when things start crashing down. And so what we saw with this high correlation between crypto prices and macro conditions is when there started to be a risk off mindset, people started selling risk assets first. Broadly, they sold risk securities, but they also sold crypto risk. And so when there's downward pressure, it starts to put pressure on anything that doesn't have strong asset liability management. So like, let's talk about stable coins. So first of all, this umbrella term of stable coins covers a lot of different assets underneath that hood. So we have stable coins that are backed by US dollars. Those stable coins, for example, should never depeg because they're holding US dollars in bank accounts or US treasuries against a dollar stable coin outstanding. There are other stable coins that are were deemed to be algorithmic stable coins, which is that they hold a basket of securities and they are trying to manage their assets such that they are worth a dollar. That is a very different type of stable coin. And that is what happened with Terra Luna. And so then as macro conditions were faltering, the assets backing Terra Luna became unpegged to the liabilities and people started to see this. And you started to see some, some interesting um, events that were then exposed via crypto Twitter, which has been a really important, we should talk about crypto Twitter and its role in predicting some of these poor risk management practices. We have but, a whole podcast dedicated to that. At least we need one. <laughs> right. Um, and people became spooked. And so you saw people trying to get out and then it just created a complete devaluation of Luna, which then cratered the entire system. And those lost their peg, it sent it crashing down. And 
to some on the outside, to be honest, it was not surprising because an algorithmic stablecoin is very hard to manage. And so there was not a lot of surprise, but it caught some people by surprise. And this was a good learning for the industry. It's a good learning about what types of regulation needs to be around stablecoins, what type of transparency, what type of reserve requirements, and how one describes their stablecoin to, to consumers to ensure that people understand the risk that they're taking when they buy into these assets. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I think that the model itself, I think many of us, even if we were somewhat speculatively kind of worried about what the model looked like for, for Terra Luna at the time, we also kind of recognized that it was an experiment and we kind of wanted to see where that experiment went. So I think that even for participants in this space, you know, we didn't want to necessarily be too critical because we wanted to understand like what you know what could actually potentially be wrong but obviously when tested you know it led to that death spiral and unfortunately it cast a pretty wide net uh, and it dragged down celsius three hours capital voyager digital and those are just some of the centralized entities that kind of got affected in june i think celsius in particular was really heavily invested in terra's anchor lending excuse me uh terra's anchor lending protocol uh which is you know, one reason it was able to offer really high yields on its own platform. It was also recursively borrowing on Aave, um, you know, you know, 3AC, Voyager. I mean, these were all just stories of credit gone wrong. You know, like something that you mentioned to me before is that, you know, people were creating these, these financial companies with just very little understanding of finance one-on-one. That seems to be just the big takeaway here. I mean, could you, could you kind of expound on that? is absolutely one of the key takeaways that people should have from 2022 in crypto and it's a pervasive theme that we've seen across the failures that have happened the failures that have happened are not any failure of crypto they aren't failures of the protocols or the assets that we've seen it is failure to understand proper risk management so it is taking too much leverage against concentrated illiquid asset positions. It is concentration risk. It is saying, okay, I'm gonna put all of my assets in one basket where I don't have the ability to liquidate those assets in an orderly fashion in the market without creating slippage, i.e. the delta between the price I was holding them at and the price I can sell them at. It is not having good control environments. It is, it is taking risky business practices with conflicts of interest. And so I think these are all lessons that we've learned over the last 100 years of traditional finance or plus. And, these are new lessons to people who are building in crypto. And what you've seen is this real division between companies who were thoughtful in risk management and companies that were not. And so you're definitely seeing the depreciation in prices expose poor banking practices. And you've seen that consistent theme run through Voyager, 3AC, and then even going over into Alameda Research. I mean, I definitely think this is the, the opening of what happened with the FTX and Alameda failure. Yeah, let, let's talk about FTX because obviously it's much more fresh in our minds. It tends to be for me, at least, you know, an example of some of the open issues that can exist. They they can remain unresolved for quite a while while markets are stable, but they definitely get tested when you know markets are a lot weaker. And, and of course, FTX in particular seems to be a real case of fraud. Um, but there were some a lot of important people who were defending it. Uh, I mean, like. How should we think about this this whole situation? We should think of this as fraud. We should think of this as a crime. And I think that's really different um, than bad risk management. And so I think both things can be true in this case. I think there was poor risk management or lack of any risk management. 
um, at Alameda. And then there was fraud on the behalf of FTX, meaning that when we saw the balance sheet of Alameda come out and saw that the assets were in these very illiquid tokens, very concentrated, and that they had high degrees of leverage against them, that is something that could have failed in its own right if those liabilities were called and people wanted their money back. What we didn't know at the time is that that money was then customer money of FTX, which is the fraud in and of itself, that there should have never been misappropriation of customer funds to lend against these concentrated positions on Alameda. And there should not have been permission to let a hedge fund or a market maker sit side by side with an exchange without clear regulation to ensure there was no conflicts of interest and that those two entities were kept as truly segregated and no front running and all of the other bad stuff that can happen when you can have a risk of someone trading against your clients or trading with clients money, God forbid, which is what ultimately happened. We now have a lot more data than we had when it initially failed, but it appears as if customer funds were treated as corporate funds. And this is a complete failure of control. This is a complete failure of fiduciary duties that one should have when they are holding customer assets and serving customers in these ways. And I think that this really calls for an important reckoning for the industry and understanding of why transparency is critical, disclosures are critical, and customers need to be treated with due care in this space. And we're really proud that Coinbase is so different. This could not have happened at Coinbase, but it shouldn't happen anywhere. So that's a great point about uh, how Coinbase is actually different from FTX. Can you just expand on that for people who are listening? Because, you know, I, I think it's really important to kind of make the difference about how something that happened to FTX couldn't happen at Coinbase. Thanks for asking that, David. And it's such an important question to get answered in this market. So I want to answer, is your money safe at Coinbase? Why we are different, how we manage our business. So first and foremost, it's important to start with, we are a very different company with a very different business model. We are an agent only business model, which means that we are matching customer trades on our exchange. We do not have a business for proprietary trading. We do not have a hedge fund. We are not trading our own corporate assets against our customers. Further, there can't be a run on the bank at Coinbase because of the way that we hold our customer funds one for one. If you have a Bitcoin on Coinbase, we're holding a Bitcoin for you. If you have a Dogecoin on Coinbase, we're holding a Dogecoin for you. If you have US dollars, we're holding US dollars. We do not have a mismatch between the assets that you think you have and the assets that we're holding for you. It's like they have little envelopes and you're sticking your little envelope into your safe deposit box at the bank. We are the safe deposit box for you. We are a custodian for you, a fiduciary. We are not using your assets for any purpose that does not explicitly have customer consent that is then incurring risk on your behalf. So we're not taking risk on behalf of our customers. Further, we have what we consider legal protections and operational protections to protect customer assets. So the legal protections are within our user agreements. We include Article 8 protection, which says that the digital assets we're holding for the customers are not Coinbase property. We will not be making those available to our creditors. We cannot use this for corporate use in any way, shape, or form. Those are customer assets. We also have strong operational controls. We segregate customer assets from corporate assets within our books and records. If you look at our balance sheet, which is publicly filed every quarter, you can see line items in our balance sheet that say corporate cash. You can see a line item that says custodial cash. Custodial equals customer. You can see custodial crypto equals customer. And then on the liability side, there's a dollar for dollar match of those customer assets 
in fiat and customer assets in crypto. So that means that we're holding a liability for you and an asset. There's been a lot of discussion around proof of reserves, which is another um, cryptographic way to prove that we have your assets. And the challenges with that, and we have a blog post that I would encourage people to read, is a proof of reserves only gives you the asset side. It doesn't tell you, hey, we might have lent out those assets. There might be a different liability. Or, hey, we just swept those in at a point in time. So traditional audits and traditional accounting with a third party validating that these assets are there is the best standard in today's market. We hope for a future where cryptographically we can offer additional proof, and we're working towards that future. But today, an audit is the way to go. So the last thing I'll just comment that we're a strong capital position. We have at the end of Q3, over five and a half billion dollars of US dollars available. And we have a risk team that grew up in traditional finance and we are very thoughtful about counterparty risk, asset liability risk, and all of the ways that these companies have failed this year are things that we diligently put controls in and have skated through with very few losses. Um, we had a modest loss with FTX that was for operational purposes, but feel really good about our counterparty and credit risk exposure. That's a really good point too about the proof of reserves. And you know, what's really interesting is that the community also recognizes that if you're only seeing one side of the balance sheet, you're just not getting the full story. So uh, I, I think it's amazing that people recognize that and that we're trying to figure it out right now. This says very little, I think about crypto itself, unlike what you know some skeptics suggest. And it says almost everything about human behavior. But, you know, I think one way that uh, people are, are trying to fall back on trying to deal with the situation is obviously looking at regulation. And, and I think that's the right approach. Uh, but certainly there seems to be an overhang of certain regulations that we were looking at in 2022, like the DCCPA, for example. Um, you know, we're not sure about what the progress is going to look like there. I mean, you're very involved in this. Maybe you can kind of talk about that and maybe just kind of go over, like, how can better regulation overall just make a difference here? Like, could it prevent something like FTX from happening in the future? So whenever an event of this size happens, it's important to step back and evaluate your own control environment, the regulations that were going to be put forth to ensure that those regulations were the right regulations and that they could have prevented that activity. So I think it's no surprise that we've seen a pullback from some of the regulations, but I do think that we are going to see heightened regulation and focus on this area as we go forward. And I think that's natural occurrence from this type of event. So we want to work with Washington to drive crypto regulations that will safeguard user funds and take into account also the important technological advances that are unique to crypto. So we have a good opportunity to put a good framework in place in the US. I think there's great models that we can look to across the globe right now and take those best practices and come up with a comprehensive framework that will protect consumers, provide transparency of risk disclosures, but also enable this innovation to continue to put forward a more fair, equal financial system to drive down the cost to bring in the inclusion um, that we think that crypto really promises. So there's a real risk in my mind that with these events that we will stifle the innovation in the US and that will push more behavior to less transparent, more risky venues. And then we could have similar risks that things like FTX could be built and continue. And so I think regulation can build confidence for both individual consumers and institutions and market participants. I think it can provide playing fields that are clear for all participants to promote innovation. And we're optimistic that we can really get to that place in the U.S. in 2023, um, just like we can like 
hope that Mika gets adopted and pushes forward in Europe. And we've seen great progress in Middle East and Singapore and other countries. So I think that crypto is here to stay. And the key here is how do we get the innovation in protected, get the regulation clear so that these events don't happen and consumers can feel more confident operating in this space. Can we, can we just actually just talk about Mika and actually VARA as well in the UAE, just, just for a minute, because you mentioned that they are representing like the models of what regulation can look like, you know, in some ways, almost the gold standard. Like, can we just talk about what went right there? How do we get to that place in the US? Absolutely. So I think what's critical here is that we provide definitions, categorization, protections, carve outs, all of the things that people need to understand today. So what is the definition of a crypto security? We have clarity that Bitcoin is a commodity, Ethereum is a commodity. You know, we have an expectation that many cryptos should be commodities, but there's also going to be crypto security tokens. We think that there's a hope in the future that we're going to tokenize all forms of asset classes, and we need clarity for how those will play out with various regulatory regimes. We also need clarity, um, and we, Coinbase, have petitioned the SEC on this, is how those work with rules that were built in a pre- digital asset time period. And so the need for intermediaries is different in crypto because you can settle transactions real time on the blockchain. And so you don't need third party intermediaries enshrined in law to, to facilitate settlement as an example. And so working through the practical challenges of how you bring regulations to a new asset class, but meet the same business goals. The same business principles are consumer protection around transparency, around capital. These are important, but you might get there in a different way. And that is, I think the struggle um, that people have is redrafting rules for a new technology. And we've seen these frameworks come place in other countries, so I'm optimistic we'll get here in the US, but we're seeing a lot of innovation um, and I'm excited for the future that this will hold. So unfortunately for a lot of people, I'm sure the, this, uh, the, the call up to this point has been kind of a bummer in a lot of ways, because we've gone over what's kind of gone wrong in the crypto space, uh, but it's important to kind of go over that. Um, what about what's gone right? You know, like for me, for example, like I think about institutional adoption, we still see that it's firmly entrenched here. Like Coinbase actually sponsored a survey that was done by institutional investor. that suggests that most investors actually believe that crypto is here to stay. Like that, that view hasn't changed. Um, so, you know, I would kind of love to get your thoughts here. You know, what are you seeing in terms of the level of institutional activity in this space? We are seeing continued adoption and we're really excited about the innovation potential that we see here. So Coinbase, we've continued to build out and strengthen our institutional relationships. And we're doing that in new and exciting ways. So one of the things we shared in our with our investors at the end of Q3 is now 25 of the top 100 hedge funds have accounts with Coinbase and that we're serving their crypto investment needs. But we're really expanding beyond investments. And we're thinking about partnerships with Fortune 100 companies that are thinking about building their own offerings in crypto. So for example, we have a partnership now with Google and Google Cloud customers will be able to pay for their services via select cryptos that we will facilitate through our commerce products that we have. Web3 developers will be able to access Google Cloud's public blockchain data sets via BigQuery, which is going to be powered by a node service that we offer. We also have announced a partnership with BlackRock, where more and more institutional customers are looking to participate in crypto. And so BlackRock is going to offer this service through their Aladdin software, which will enable risk management and operational management of crypto side by side with all other investable asset classes that they support. 
So I think that we continue to see this adoption. Institutions have long sales cycle and they don't get into things to get in and get out. They make strategic investments to get into a new asset class and then they're gonna grow. It may be small dollars today because these are risk assets. This is not, you know, a mutual fund or, you know, traditional treasury bills. This is a small risk asset class, but they're starting to get in and they're starting to think about how crypto will become part of the future, much like we were in the early dot-com days where, you know, people dabbled in the late 90s with, oh, I'm going to have a website, I'm going to have search. Now everyone is a web company, everyone has a technology presence. And so we believe that's the future of crypto as well. So people are dabbling, they're looking at small use cases, but we continue to see meaningful conversations with institutional investors. And one of the analogies that we use internally is it's a coiling spring. So from the investing side, we absolutely see people getting ready to trade, although they're sitting on the sidelines because this market is frothy and they want to make sure they're getting it at the right time, much like they would with any highball asset class. But they're ready and they're seeing this as a long-term investable asset. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think for a lot of institutional investors, you know, they see this, and I mean correctly, as a market cycle. And they need to be prepared in order to, you know, research this space, hone their skills in the space, figure out like what they're doing in terms of, you know, custody and 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 prime trading all this kind of stuff in order to be able to actually effectively work in that next market cycle um another part is also the the folks who are building in the space as well and you know you, you kind of liken this to like the 90s and in the early 90s people were kind of just building like everywhere to, to try to figure out how to how to you know, capitalize on the innovations in the space you know, Web3 still represents a huge opportunity, especially for the creator community. You know, like, what, what do you think about scaling and, and defining the, the use case for crypto uh, as, we, as we move into the next cycle? Oh, that's so exciting what's going on on the ground here. So one of the stats that we look at is the number of developers who are developing Web3 applications. And that number just continues to go up and to the right. We continue to look at the number of engineers, the number of college graduates focusing in this space, and people are just really interested in blockchain technology, tokenization of assets, how we build decentralized applications, how we create more of a peer-to-peer, -peer, a more inclusive financial system. And, and just like the novel use cases that we talk about with the potential in NFTs and loyalty programs and how we can eventually have like NFT tickets and more value that will accrue to the creator and not intermediary. So there's so much buzz and excitement, but we have some real practical limitations today. So one is scalability of blockchains where blockchains are not as fast as some of the existing payment rails, but they're getting there and they are making meaningful strides. And what is so exciting about that, and I think we should talk about the ETH merge because I think it's a really good um, indication of what decentralized communities can bring together, which is this year, Ethereum moved from a proof of work to a proof of stake network. And what was so encouraging about that was that this is hard development. This is changing wheels on an airplane mid-flight, um, probably on a spaceship mid-flight because it's not complicated. And it was all done decentrally. It was done by developers contributing to these protocols and these upgrades. And I think what it shows is that there is resilience here that these protocols can go through significant upgrades, which gives us confidence for the next upgrade. And the next upgrades, for example, like the Shanghai will create more utility on the blockchain. And I think that it's a fundamental validation of success from decentralized finance. I think it's important to know that confirmations were continuing. 
the network never went down. It never got taken offline for um, repairs. And so that is really a technical feat that I think is important to, to recognize. But the key for us is focusing on how do we scale these blockchains? How do we build infrastructure that is more easy to use to make to move the conversation from crypto as like, hey, this you've got to send money to this alphanumeric character. It's kind of like, again, back to the late 90s where we focus on like inputting a TCP IP address into web browsers. Like that's hard to use. We're never going to get a billion users in crypto until it is fast, easy to use, that there's clear regulation, and then we have the utility. And those are all the things that we see behind the scenes making huge strides towards. So despite the news, despite the fallout of poor risk management, there's so much that we're excited about seeing on those four kind of growth pillars. And that's where we're kind of putting our heads down and building every day. Alicia, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this was great. You know, we covered a lot of these topics in our recently published 2023 year ahead report. Uh, again, you can find that online right now at coinbase.com. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been the Around the Block podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties.